I'm Todd Healy, and that's how you sell without selling out. Rogers that. Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Healy, the host of Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. And today we have a very special guest, a guest that if he wasn't here, I literally wouldn't be here. Uh, it's my hero, my mentor. Uh, I've known him my entire life, before my entire life even started. Um, he's known as the Todd father in the community of the Healy and the Silva family, but uh, I call him dad. And today, our guest is uh, is Todd Healy. So Todd, Dad, thanks for thanks for showing up and being a part of the Rogers That podcast. Thanks, Roger. I couldn't think of a better title I'm more proud of than to be called Dad. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And I'm also a dad. And so uh, Dad, Todd, Todd Father is now also a grandpa, even though he's been a grandpa for a very long time. Thanks to my sister beating me to the punch once again. And maybe my sister can be a guest uh, later on, but I have a feeling that she'd get her own spinoff. And so it would just destroy this. So, um, but yeah, yeah, this, this podcast is a, uh, is a show dedicated to having conversations with real authentic leaders, no matter if they're in the world of business and the world of charity, but as long as the world that they're in, they're doing it, um, as themselves. And I learned a lot, learned a lot from you every day, but as a child, I, I learned the value of consistency and showing up, which I think sometimes, uh, people get the the brunt of like, why can't you be here on time? And why can't you dress, you know, for work? And I, I just learned that. And it was just ingrained at me from a very young age. And um, I'm excited to have a conversation with you today. But before we get into the nuts and bolts, maybe give us some background where you're from, what led you to where you are, what do you do? And that's my question is I still at 42 years old, I don't know what you do. So um, <laughs> today we finally get to figure that out. So Todd, dad, Todd, father, the mic and the floor is yours. Okay, thanks, Raj. Um, you know, I don't know how far back to go, but I was born and raised overseas, which obviously had a huge impact on my life and imprinted me in the early years. And when I was about nine years old, we moved to the United States. Well, maybe, t I mean, it's not like you just, you grew up in Pakistan. Right. So it's not like you grew up in London or, or France no. or Australia. You were in Karachi, Pakistan, which is my fun fact that I always take with me is people always wonder where are your parents from I'm like my mom's from New Mexico my dad's from Pakistan and they're like how are you so pale I'm like well yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's American citizen but uh, this is a spray tan yeah um no my dad was executive secretary of the YMCA in Karachi and that's how we were there my parents met during the world war world war ii in 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 Italy and got married and uh, stayed over in Europe for a while. I was born in Germany, and then we moved to Pakistan after that. So Karachi uh, to America, Northern California, and, and the stories, the legends we heard as a kid, which just don't add up. They're not on brand with you at all, but um, you seem to be a respectful rebel at, at a pretty young age. Um, yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure rebel was the right word. I, I obviously went to Berkeley for undergrad and graduate well, let's school. Say, let's rewind the clock a little bit. I think that, you know, you, you hitchhiked across the country. You owned a motorcycle, things that you could not have married. I'm obviously your <laughs> wife's spawn because the thought of even turning a motorcycle on never will excite me. But what, what, in the, what was wrong with you? What happened? What was your sobering moment? You know, I, um, I always loved motorcycles, always. When I was a kid, we lived in a neighborhood where our neighbor had a driveway that went, went down quite a ways, and he had a Triumph 600, and he let me take that Triumph to the top of the driveway and ride it down, just coast it down. And that was probably, I was 12 or 13 years old. At and 42, just, that still sounds terrifying. <laughs> See, at, at 72, that still sounds exciting to me. I still, you know, I still have that bug, but obviously I'm not following it. Um, but I, I just loved the motorcycles, and I, I drove one up and down the coast of California more than once, when it did the perimeter of the United States when I was in college. Get to the hitchhiking part. Also hitchhiked across the country. So weird. 
so weird. I didn't have any money. If y'all aren't watching this on video, he's literally in a, a suit and loafers um, and a, a, a starched uh, pair of pants, and he hitchhiked across the country back when the Easy Rider was probably the number one movie in America, and that was what you no, did. That was before. I mean, Easy Rider was before I got my motorcycle to do the cross-country trip. But, yeah, I, I didn't have any money. I had no way. I couldn't afford to fly or even drive across country. At the time, all I had was a motorcycle. So rather than drive the motorcycle that time, I hitchhiked across. That is just so strange, and I'm glad that you made it through because this would not be called Rogers that. This would be like Steve that. Um, okay, so your evolution into business. You know, I, I think that you know something that a lot of people don't know about my family or my dad is I, I did not get any athletic genes, which no one knows that because both my parents or knows why. Both my parents were great athletes, but my dad was an all-American water polo player. He also was a salesperson, still is, but I think that your evolution into becoming – an expert salesperson started when you decided to go to college. So what, what did that look like? You know, when I was in college, I got a job selling Cutco knives door to door. And it was a tremendous experience. I learned so much I still use today. But the way we worked is we'd find an apartment complex, we'd look, go to the mailboxes and where there were several names listed, I'd make note of those apartments because that typically meant women lived together, guys, not, not four guys couldn't live together in an apartment. So I figured those were four women. I'd make the apartment numbers known. I'd write them down, knock on their doors, um, and offer to demonstrate a case of Cutco cutlery for an exchange. Was this also back in like the Charles Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer days where women were maybe terrified of a younger, good looking dude with sideburns coming to their door with a box of knives? So I didn't have the knives with me. I just had a cookbook and aluminum foil. Even weirder. Which, like, this is no, just, this okay. is a... a if, you, if you really want to know the story, I'd knock on the door and I'd turn my back. So when they opened the door, I would act startled. But, oh, excuse me. And I'd say, have you seen a guy around here giving away cookbooks and aluminum foil? And, of course, they hadn't because I was the only one doing it. And they'd say, no. And I'd say, are you sure you're not trying to get another cookbook and aluminum Were foil? Were you married at the time? No, heck no. Oh, gosh. No, geez. I was a sophomore in college. Oh. But anyway, it became, it became a, a so ingrained in me, I couldn't drive by an apartment complex without stopping. Mm. I literally was so in, enjoying what I was doing, but I finally stopped. I was number one salesman in the 11 Western states, but I stopped because I couldn't stop selling. Yeah. There was oh, an yeah. end at five o'clock, you don't go home. So at that time, I didn't think I'd go back into selling. Uh -huh. And I got a master's degree in social work and interviewed with some nonprofits. And that's what got me to Texas. I got a, off a job from United Way in Corpus Christi. At the time, I didn't know where Corpus Christi was. Uh, when they explained to me it was on the coast, and my response was, Texas has a coast? Yeah. I just thought of West Texas. So that yeah. took me to Corpus Christi where I met your mom. Wow. And, and here we are today. I'm from Corpus as well. Fun fact. Um, okay. So I, first of all, I didn't know that story about the aluminum foil and my dad eventually having his own uh, maybe movie made about him. Who would play you in a movie, actually? Richard Gere, but not like weird Richard Gere, like Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman, like right when he started to go gray um, and he's got a good head of hair, you know, just like my dad. Also, Michael Jackson had an attorney back in the day that always reminds me of my dad, a good head of uh, long gray hair. Life insurance. What, what was the road that got you to life insurance going from selling and then eventually burning out, which is something that most salespeople go through. And you say about the apartment complex thing, you really I don't think you can ever turn it off when you're in sales, but what led you to getting into the world of life insurance? I didn't get burned out. I enjoyed it so much I couldn't stop. That's not, to me, that wasn't being burned it's out. It's an addiction. It, yeah, I was I was very successful. I was making really good money as a college student, so it wasn't that I was burned out from that standpoint. But when I met your mom, 
I was working for United Way, and I knew that if I gave her the kind of life I wanted to give her and future children, I could never do it working for a nonprofit. So what, maybe even tell people how crazy that story is. I think that I've kind of lived, I've lived it my entire life where um, I tell, how many, how many dates did you and mom go on before you got engaged? One week we were engaged. One week, and then married how long after? Two and a half months. And then I wasn't born for five years. I think that's the biggest, like, gotcha is people are like, oh, your grandpa had a shotgun. I was like, he did have a shotgun, but it had nothing to do with him actually falling in love. And that led to my sister and I both uh, finding love quick and uh, getting married and having kids as well. So that's a whole other uh, podcast we'll do on uh, romance and uh, love is not dead. So life insurance, um, it's, a, it's not a tangible. I, I never could get excited about selling something that's not tangible and you can't actually feel it and experience it. But what was it that got you into the world of life insurance and estate planning? Well, as you know, um, I, we, I didn't have any capital. I couldn't start a business. And so the only two options for me were real estate and life insurance. And my life insurance agent was somebody I really respected and looked up to. And so I talked to him about the insurance business and he started recruiting me. And that's when I, at first I turned it down because I thought anybody could do it. And I told the manager, I said, I'm not interested in this position because it seems to me anybody can sell life insurance and go in the life insurance business. You're not very picky who you pick. And he said, not at all. I had several tests I had done, profiles I had done. And he said, what you were just describing as a realtor. No, no yeah, hook. Yeah, anybody yeah. can do it. Yeah. Or it's, the perception is. Yeah. Anybody, if you, especially with social media now, if you have yeah. your real estate license, you too can be a success. But anyway, back to life insurance. So that's how I started in the insurance business. And after a year, there were four older gentlemen who were partners, and they brought me in as a full partner at the end of one year into their firm. And so that's where I got my start and became more independent. Originally, I was hired by a company and then became, after one year, became independent. How did you get excited about selling something about, essentially, that centers around somebody's death? Well, see, I think it focuses around somebody who loves somebody or something. So the idea is to protect, and the same reason I have a lot of life insurance is to protect, originally, you know, you and Liz and mom and the idea of being able to provide that kind of security was really appealing to me. Did you ever find that as a hard? I couldn't get excited about that. Like, I, I couldn't walk in and be like, hey, you know, this is going to really help the people you love after you're gone. I, I still couldn't do that. And that's also for what it's worth. If y'all have not met with your life insurance agent, it's the worst meeting of all time. I'll never forget. <laughs> Thanks. Can the we first, cut that out? The first time I went to meet with my dad about like life insurance, I'll never forget what I was eating, where I was sitting. And I took the day off work because the questions that were asked, I was just like, this sucks. I was eating a, a egg white omelet with broccoli, and I remember I'll never like broccoli again because he said, what do you want to do if you reach a certain state of vegetation? And I was eating, I was like, this is it, end scene. And he kept his game face on, and I just, I, I, I have insurance now, but oof, that's a tough sell in my opinion, and he's better than anybody at it. Well, thank you. But, you know, I, we, Chuck Hollander is a coach that we use and refer to, and he has a concept called the compass, where at the northern point of the compass, people are satisfied with their current situation. Same with the clock. If you think 12 o'clock north, people are satisfied. Then you go to 3 o'clock or the eastern point of the compass, and that's where you make people aware of the problems they might have they don't know about. And then once they're aware, you get them to agree to want to solve those problems. That's the southern point or 6 o'clock. Then you go to 9 o'clock where they say, okay, what are the options for solving that? And that's my job. My job is to make people aware who are they're satisfied where they are. I make them aware of problems they may not think about, may not want to think about. Nobody wants to think about it. And then help them decide whether they want to solve those problems or not. So it's a great feeling when you can do that. 
unfortunately, I've also realized over the few last few decades that you can't care more than a client does or the prospect does. So if you make them aware and they still don't want to do anything, there's nothing you can do about it. Remember the first time you got burned? Oh, yeah. How old were you? Oh, probably 27. What was it? What happened? Where <laughs> I was working with an attorney, and he had been through rehab during the application process. And I had to tell the insurance company that we had to withdraw the application. And then his brother-in-law went in the life insurance business. And his brother-in-law, after a short period of time, told him what he needed to do for purchasing life insurance. And I told him, I said, I don't know what your brother-in-law has learned in the last six weeks of being in the insurance business, but after 10 years, this is what I'm suggesting. And he went with his brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law, they, I mean, it was just really, it's one of those things where if you can look ahead, you can see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, geez. So it's been, it's been challenging on many fronts, but the biggest lesson is that you can't care more than the client does. And that's probably true in real estate as well. Yeah, it's hard. I, I don't know. This is it's such an emotional sales, I think, is a very emotional lifestyle. And especially with us, it's what we're selling really at the end of the day is us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a service and you can work harder than anyone else and you can know more, but they got to like you. Um, but I've also found that now I have to like them, which I kind of, you know, my splash into real estate, my niche was wealthy people that were just not nice. And I got used to that. And then it just, just, it just kind of ruins the the root of the, you know, the reason for doing it. But um, let's talk about your most, the biggest success of your entire life. Um, you raised me. And so what was that like <laughs> raising me and learning uh, along the way? Like what, what did you learn along the way with a perfect child? <laughs> you taught me a lot, Rogers. You well, taught like me a what? lot. You know, I, I think um, where you and mom and Liz were always number one, that's the thing I think that we hopefully ingrained in you, that the most important thing that we were doing was raising you and Liz. We always felt that it wasn't so much the platform you started from that was important, but it was a platform you ended up on that was critical. Um, we felt that way about both you and Liz, and you've both been incredibly successful. So um, I think that was the main thing, is putting family first. We really, really worked on that. And I know that came with sacrifice, and I, you know, I, I think, again, to the whole premise of this podcast is essentially remaining uh, humble and being yourself along the rides of success and failure. But um, maybe give us some examples of what you learned along the way where maybe you could have done something that you didn't agree with ethically or morally and that maybe cost you some money or you trusted the wrong person. And, and what, what kind of lessons did you learn there? You know, in the insurance business, there's been lots of schemes that have come out. People have put, promote very, what I think, questionable techniques and uh, I've always stayed away from those, and I've watched my friends literally make hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars by embracing those concepts and doing a disservice, I think, not only to their clients, but to the insurance industry, where at one point we were partners with the insurance carriers we work with. They looked at us as, a, as their partner in the field, but what happened after those schemes came out is carriers got real skeptical of who we were and as a whole and, and the way a lot of people operated impacted the industry as far as your career what, what what drives you what keeps you going obviously you're 72 years old a lot of people your age have at least slowed down or maybe retired and i know that that word doesn't really exist in our family but what, what what's the daily drive how do you do this after how many decades five four, four a little over four four decades you know i just love it i mean i just absolutely love it and we're, i'm at the point in my career where we're getting referrals we're getting people calling us attorneys cpas referring business to us and 
we're finding that the hardest thing in my business is getting to the decision makers. The very, very wealthy people have so many guards. They have so many gatekeepers. There's three or four layers typically to get to the end buyer. And in some cases, we did a very significant case a couple of years ago. We didn't even meet the client until after the transaction had closed. Is that hard? It's Yeah, because it's not as rewarding as dealing with the individuals themselves. But the idea of being able to get to the end buyer is the most challenging thing because they have so many people, but so many people guarding them. Is that what you consider the biggest challenge? What, what do you like along the way? Maybe when you first started, what was the biggest challenge you, you faced? Whether you were an, a young partner or trying to sell something to people that were maybe in your age range that you know they couldn't conceptualize life insurance in their mid twenties. What, what what were the challenges over the course of your last four decades? I think initially the biggest challenge was overcoming the image of an insurance agent. You know, when I told your grandmother and grandfather I was going to the insurance business, your grandmother said door to door. She said, I thought the insurance business was for people who couldn't find a job. So while you're looking for a job, you go in the insurance business. You should have turned your back and given her some aluminum foil. And then you could have, you could have brought it full <laughs> circle. Look. Yeah. Look. So that was the big main thing. And then I realized early in my career that people, and I tried really hard. I got lots of credentials. I got designations initially. You think that does any difference? I think, I think it does give you credibility, particularly with advisors. Huh. It shows that you're more than just a typical insurance salesman. But I learned early in my career that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So then I had to shift some of my focus instead of trying to show how much I knew about the insurance business and, and planning to really be empathetic with the client and understand where they were coming from. So what were the challenges along the way? Other than obviously the perception of a realtor, a car salesman, an insurance person, a financial advisor, how did you evolve from there and you know face the new challenge? And I tell people like I Remember when I started the company, the stresses I had were paying $500 in rent and having to buy paper and dealing with one person's issue. And I'm like, I would love for that to be the stress right now. But, you know, it's all relative and it kind of gives you thick skin and you learn, you know, everyone has a different superpower. And I think that mine is resiliency, which sometimes I, I, wish, I wish it wasn't. But um, what was the evolution of your challenges oh, yeah, along and how it made you, you know, a stronger salesperson and a better leader? You know, you know, probably the biggest challenge was the marketplace. When we lived in Corpus Christi, there were not a lot of people that I could call on as prospects. It was not that big a community. And an advisor I worked with at the time said that even Coca-Cola doesn't have 100% of the marketplace. Yeah. That not everybody's going to buy Coke. So he encouraged me to broaden my market. He said, you can either take your knowledge to more markets or you can take more knowledge to your current clients, you know, like sell employee benefits or investments. And I didn't want to do that because I love what I do. And so I focused on continuing to do what I did. I moved I moved around the country a little bit with business. I had business in, in uh, Houston. I had business in Louisiana. I had business in Washington, D.C., in Virginia. And did I really, you mind all the travel? I mean, you traveled a lot. It was tough flying out of Corpus Christi. It was uh, really tough. And that was one of the reasons I decided to open office in San Antonio, because I knew I could compete in the big marketplace, but I didn't want to travel and make those kind of trips. One day, I did from Corpus Christi to Washington, D.C., and back in the same day. Awful. It was a killer. It was a, just really... Um, so anyway, we opened up in San Antonio to establish a market there, market presence there. And then we were there about two and a half years, obviously, you know. And San Antonio, we were there for four and a half. Was it four and a half years? Yeah. I was thinking, okay. I hated every second of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not that it's, it was, we had 
unusual circumstances. But anyway, then based on that, we came up here. You know, I, I don't need to get into all that whole story about how you all started school up here, but we moved here about 22 years ago. And it's been the best investment your mom and I could have made for you and Liz. What about from a humbling experience of, as you look back over your story career that's still going for a long time? But what, what were the first few moments where you just kind of got stopped in your tracks and got your ass handed to you? Maybe that hadn't happened. I can't think of it. Uh, well, that's the difference between the two Heelys. I can, yeah, I mean, it, it's different. And I think something, we have a lot of differences, a lot of similarities, but I'm a volume player and I don't like turning down anything. And you're, you know, you're very niche with the clientele that you take on. And so, you know, what, what's that been like? I, obviously, you're the high net worth, high, high net worth individuals are, is my dad's uh, bullseye. For me, it's everybody that needs a place to live, work or vacation. Which is everybody. Yeah. And, and I just think I couldn't get into the headspace of only targeting a certain type of person. And I don't know if that's because my personality is a little bit unique, but also, you know, I had a, I don't know, my dad's a very successful company, but he has a handful of people that work for him. And over here, it's a little bit different where there's more people, but I deal with a little bit more bullshit, a little bit more BS and just have different situations where the thought of having a core group of four or five people work for you for 20, 30 years sounds amazing, but that's not my reality. Um, but what about humbling experiences if, if you have one? Like partners betraying you. Oh, yeah. See, there that's you go. happened. Yeah, that's happened. Um, more than once, I've had two different people who, I will say, just manipulated the books or got revenue paid to them directly or worked with a client that we started off working with together and, and they told me nothing was going on and turned out they placed the business without going through our firm. So things like that. I'm not sure those are humbling. They're really, really, really disappointing. Um, yeah, well, maybe I, humbling is the right word. Yeah, well, you've done it. You've, you've, you're a you're a, a climber, climber, you know, and you've always kind of just stacked and done things the right way. And I, I'm, not, I'm not the kind of guy that looks for a shortcut, but I always want to get there quicker than anybody. And that's always come with humbling experiences where make a bad hire, make a bad decision. You know, I was single till I was 40 for a reason. And, you know, I just had the being being single in, in my 20s and 30s in Dallas with success here was not the best combination and you never had to uh, go through that what, what's the best advice you give to a salesperson actually what's the best advice you would give to somebody the best advice you give to a salesperson and the best advice you give to someone who wants to start a business okay um, best advice I'd give to somebody um, I think to be true to yourself you know don't take shortcuts you know as you said you know don't sell don't sell out you know what that means sell. like a great example would be in, in the music world it'd be like someone who plays like honky tonks and dance halls and they're just known as like a texas country singer and all of a sudden they get a record deal and they have you know different type of sound because they want to make money which i get but most people in music say they're a sellout but i think with this it's just as you face the temptations of success and you get notoriety and people recognize your name and you make money how do you let that success make you a better person and that's what's fun about this is the people that I've met with, you know, like you, they're in the community, they're, they live, you know, very, you know, affluent lifestyle, but they're still good people. And they didn't let the thought of becoming more successful suck them into the vortex. And I think there's way more people that are just kind of flat out weak versus ones that have it in them to persevere and to remain humble. You know, as you're saying that, I think one of the big differences is people who stop learning and growing. Huh. They settle on their success and they plateau. And I've always tried to improve my mind. 
I'm involved with a study for the Center of Brain Health right now. I did part of the test this morning just because I want to know. Yeah, I, I want to know, you know, what I can do to improve my brain because um, I believe you can at any age. And that, that's when I think people stop growing is when they stop trying to learn. They think they've learned it all. We really, really push in our firm to continue to grow and develop. And It's like musicians. I, I have this fascination with musicians, and the ones that never stop touring are the ones that live forever. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler. Like, if you think about these people that literally never took the foot off the gas, Paul McCartney, he turned 80. Beach, uh, Brian Wilson, 80 years old. Christopher Cross in his early 70s. I mean, these people are all over the place nonstop, and then there's people that stop. Prince, Tom Petty, George Michael, the ones that just all of a sudden fall over and die. Growing. Yeah. yeah, so I, I think that's great. So back to the best advice. You said always be yourself. Is that what it was? Always be yourself and grow. I think that's part of what was I was thinking about as you were saying that is is, is a growing and the developing and, and not being stagnant. How about for a salesperson? You know, I think I learned a little moniker years ago. It said if you can see Jim Jones through Jim Jones' eyes and you can sell Jim Jones what Jim Jones buys. And it's so hard to put ourselves in our client's position. And so even in real estate, I mean, you could easily take a client and show them 15 different homes and give them all these different options without t spending time to get clarity on what their goals are. What are they looking for? Then you compare the home to their objectives instead of a home in South Lake to a home in University Park and so on. So I think that's important. Get, get, get for, for As a salesperson, make sure you're clear on your client's goals and objectives. And now as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, what's your advice? You know... I think to surround yourself with good people. I've always invested in good people. I've got a fabulous team around me. Uh, they make my job enjoyable. They challenge me. They call me out. Uh, if I, and they don't call me out in the sense that, you know, I'm not doing something right. But, but they, they'll say, you know, um, one of my team members said to me the other day, did you get any sleep last night? Because I looked pretty doggone tired. You know, that takes a good relationship for somebody to say that to you. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I've learned that the hard way. I, I work in an environment mostly with women, and I remember, like, starting off, I would tell someone, you look tired. And, like, you can't tell that to somebody, especially a woman. I was like, oh, okay, noted. So now I just don't say anything. Yeah. Um, okay, well, what about work-life balance? I know that you've perfected the and being intentional, being present. And I remember when cell phones first came out, you know, you're the first ones, put your phone down and, and be present. But what, what, what does that look like for you, knowing that you have an escape in East Texas? And is it just being intentional? And when you're here, you're working. When you're there, you're not? Well, unfortunately, with COVID, I'm also working when I'm out there, which has been a kind of a adjustment I have not enjoyed. I'd like to separate it. But I, when, when your grandfather had a place in Beeville, uh, it was a real good escape for me. Because when I was in town on a Saturday evening, I'd typically go to the office or I'd be working. So, but the main thing is because we we have flexibility as salespeople, it's it's easy to carve out time, or it's easier than somebody who works a nine to five job. So I think it's harder. I well, think, I think it, every no, every client you have in my mind is a boss, you know, and I think that it's so hard to just be present, knowing that you know the better you get at a sales job like real estate or life insurance or whatever, the more people are going to come at you and it's so hard that's why i just love being home i love being home and being with my family and music and away from people which maybe is not like the healthiest thing to say but it's just no you've done a great job of separating i mean to me, mine was integrated with you all your schedules but i may go to a foot i may go to one of your games and then or liz's yeah whatever but then i'll probably work again when i got home yeah no i mean that's 
that's mine. And again, I don't know if it's the uh, perfect balance or the most unhealthy thing ever. It's just that I'm, I'm so routine. My body wakes up the same time every day. I'm like you. And I can be on a text with my parents at five in the morning and it's everything is everyone's alert. And then but by nine o'clock at night or six o'clock at night, no, not, not they're, six o'clock. They're, they're, they're sleeping. So what would be your suggestion or your advice for um, for work life balance? I just think to make sure, always ask yourself what, you know, what your priorities are, you know, is your God, your priority, your family, then, then work, making sure you keep those in order. Um, and it's not just work. When I say life, it's also, you know, your spiritual life. You need to make sure you take care of that as well. What's your biggest regret? Um, that's a good question. My biggest regret. In work and like your professional career. I think some of the people I've tried to partner up with, Yeah. going back to the disappointments, that's my biggest regret. You think that partnerships can work? Yes, I do. Yeah, if, if you don't have ego. What's your company involved, called? C3 Financial Partners. But what was it initially? Healy Partners. See, there you go. Yeah, they can be a partner as long as it's a Healy. That's, a, that's the only <laughs> barrier. Yeah, but my entry. business, I want to make sure it lives beyond me. I, we're, we're, we're selling services. People are going to need service for 30, 40 years. Yeah. So it's important for me and my business to get my name out of it so that it's a firm that lives on, not just me. Rogers Healy and Associates. I kind of shot myself in the foot with that one. Um, okay, so in, in the world of advice, I think there's advice you can give people, but then there's advice that you received. And when you look back on your uh, life and your career, what was the moment where you received advice and it just kind of it, it just stopped you in your tracks what, what would that be you know probably the best advice I've received in business is somebody we both know Jerry McNabb at the end of one year we were reviewing my production and it was a, it was an okay year but it wasn't stellar and he looked at me and he said with your background your education your experience your staff your partners he said it's like you've got an elephant gun at your resource and you're shooting rabbits with it you're blowing rabbits away with a shot with a gun that you could be using to kill elephants. And he said, you got so much horsepower. So it got me to shift my emphasis from rabbits literally to elephants. So my screensaver on my phone, on my computer are elephants. My team gave me elephants at the end of that year because we had a very, very good year at the end of that conversation with Jerry. Hmm. And that was just really helpful to remember that. Even still, it's really easy for me to get caught up in activity instead of productivity. Define that. Well, I say, well, I worked a long day today. I worked, I worked 10 hours. I worked 12 hours. And so what I've changed is I've focused on what am I doing that's really my unique ability, you know, that's unique to me. That what is your me. unique ability? Anytime I'm with a prospect, a client, a center of influence, and I'm talking about their situation, and I'm showing them tools and resources we have, anytime I'm engaged in that kind of a conversation, that's my unique ability, or designing a case presentation. So being present. Yeah, it, but, but you know what, like you, we're pretty creative in our office with marketing ideas, and, and I've been able to put together some pretty unique things, some pretty unique videos on our website. And so I'm spending time doing that. That's my unique ability. So instead of having a goal for X number of dollars per quarter, I have a goal of 20 hours a week of unique ability activities. Podcasts. Yeah, this is a, yeah. This is a good example. Yeah. So when I'm aiming at reaching out, doing something that's unique to what we do, I count that as, as a successful day. What I've also learned is I don't want to go over 20 hours. Because then it's a hobby. No, well, it just wears you out. I mean, it takes its toll. So one week I had 28, one week 31. So now my goal is not to go over 25 hours in unique ability and to make sure I'm focused on the right thing. Do things. you time block? Yeah. Every single day? I, I time block my appointments and I time block my unique ability time. 
I measure that every single day. At the end of the day, I total it up and I carry it forward each week. What's the what's your least favorite thing about what you do? Running the business side of it. Like what? The books, the accounting. You do that? No, no, no. But I'm saying uh, being a no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I was like, wow, I didn't. But uh, no, I don't that, do that. I didn't get but that. That's part either. of it. Dealing, you know, dealing with personnel, things like that, job reviews, you know, those are not my favorite. So with a background in social work, living overseas, and obviously my grandpa, your dad, was a social worker, how, how would you go and encourage people to get involved in their community with the heart tie where it can actually leave a different kind of impact? Number one, something they're interested in, something they have a passion about, not to do it because they think it'll bring business, but it's something they're interested in for whatever reason. They have a child who has mental health issues or physical disabilities, and you know those areas that would appeal to them, not just to be involved. Uh, the second thing I would say is, and I learned this from a partner of mine who's long, long, long deceased, but as I started getting involved in organizations and leadership positions within the life insurance industry locally and nationally, he challenged me to pay attention to who was coming behind me on the organization chart, who was moving up the chart. He said, don't worry so much about who you follow. Worry more about who, you, who follows you. Hmm. Don't worry about who you follow. Worry about who follows you. Because a person who follows you in the chairs is the one that's going to sustain the programs you put into place and help you implement them. That's old man stuff right there. i got to think like that now, too. It sucks. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, God, I actually I have to worry about that. It's just ugh, the gray hair and the sideburn and all that kind of stuff. I'm never going to go gray, though. Um, a friend of mine asked me not too long ago why I don't dye my hair. Do you? I told him I do. Oh, well, there you go. That's a... <laughs> That's a, that's a Toddism. Um, so as we uh, end our time today on Rogers that, how, how would you go and describe to people what you do and how could they find you? And who are your ideal clients? How can we help you? Well, C3 Financial Partners came about because in our experience, most people don't continue their planning, whether it be personal planning, business planning, or philanthropic planning, for three reasons. Number one, they don't have clarity of their goals and objectives. Secondly, they don't have confidence in what they've done or maybe who they're advised advisors are telling them, asking them to do. And the third thing we find is people think of planning as an event. I did my wills, I did my trust, I did my life insurance, I did my limited partnership interests. But the reality is things change. Personal situations change, financial situations change, and tax laws change. So we emphasize that planning is not an event but a process. And the process needs to be coordinated. Doesn't mean we need to coordinate it. We want to make sure somebody's Is that somebody's the third C? Yeah, so the third is clarity, confidence, and coordination. We want to make sure somebody's coordinating the process. And how would they reach you if they wanted to go and have you facilitate their life insurance? Like, who, who would qualify to be a client of yours, for real? What, what does their net worth need to be? Well, that's a really difficult question because in our firm, we handle net worths from $2 million up to literally a billion. Um, but we find we can be, be the best service to people around 50 to $150 million of net worth. And if they go on our website, they'll get a good sense of who we are, how we work, and why we're different. We cool. put a lot of time and effort into that. What's the website name, Todd? C3FP.com, Roger. C3FP.com. And you heard it from the Todd father, my dad, my hero, my mentor, someone who has been the poster child of consistency. And although he has sold a bunch, he has never once sold out. And so dad, Todd, Todd father, big paw, thanks for being a part <laughs> of Roger's that today. We, we really loved having you. Thank you, Roger. So proud of what you've accomplished, son. Thank you. Thanks for funding Roger's that. <laughs> <laughs>